Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's going on, guys? Welcome to River City 93, brought to you by Roughneck Scores for the Culture FC and, of course, the Beautiful Game Network. Joining me on the phone is one of the gurus of USL Lower League Soccer and the guy that's probably started his own soccer club in the middle of a pandemic is nobody else but the guy himself, Mr. Ira Jersey. How you doing, man? Hey, great to be here, Elliot. <laughs> my, uh, it's my second or third appearance on River City 93. I think second. It's my second. I think second. Yeah. We probably, once the quarantine's over, we're probably going to have you on a lot more. There's going to be a lot of soccer <laughs> stuff to talk about. For sure. I mean, I, I can't wait to see, obviously, what the schedule is going to look like. And, you know, I don't know if that's where you want to start or if uh, if you had a whole agenda or if we're just going to sit here and chat. I mean, great. Look, I had some topics I want to talk about, but we can definitely start off with the uh, schedule. How do you think that's going to look? Because I have my own ideas, but I want to hear yours. Yeah, so, so for full disclosure, I've actually been in contact with a number of general managers and owners of some of the League One clubs. And you know, as well as a couple of people at the league office. And, you know, everyone obviously wants the, to play the season because for professional teams in the lower divisions, the only real revenue that they can make is getting uh, fans into stadiums and getting ticket sales and concessions and mer- merchandise sales. Those are really the only major revenue sources they can have. So so they're losing a lot of money without a season. So, so they're going to do everything in their power to have some semblance of a season. So what I've been told is that they intend on playing a full 28-game schedule in USL League One if they can start uh, in August. And basically that would be a match every um, – six matches every month for um, for basically three and a half months. Um, that would probably be either be a shortened playoff or, or they would just uh, – you know, have like a Wednesday weekend playoff format for the, for the final. Wow. So, so it's completely doable if we can lift this thing in, you know, after June. Um, you know, the challenge is if it goes later, then they have to, um, th- then they'll have to start, you know, either doing two games a week. And, and you know, that's not optimal because these rosters aren't so big. And if someone gets injured, it's, it's more likely that they get injured that way. Um, or two, they, they shorten the season and they do, say, 24 games or 20 games. So at least they'll get something and um, get some season in. But it's, uh, it's a big challenge, uh, and, and for sure. Um, I, I think that, you know, August would be, a, would be fine. I mean, I think at this point, if we played any soccer in the fall, uh, we'd all probably be pretty happy. Yeah, I, I, look, if I get 12 games out of this, I'll be happy. <laughs> I'll take anything at this point. Um, but this also kind of piques my interest now because how does that impact rosters? Because you're thinking if you're going to be starting the season in August, you know, common sense will tell you, well, they're going to have to probably increase roster size because players are going to be playing multiple games. There's going to be injuries. 
you know, how quick do we get back to training? How, how does that start date, initial start date, um, kind of impacts all those different areas? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because the, I, the thing is, at this point, like, could you actually add some folks to your roster? The answer is yes, because I would guess that they would change the roster freeze date. They would have to change the roster freeze date because normally it would be kind of late August, early September for League One. Um, my guess is they would push that back to, you know, maybe mid to late September. Um, so, so you could see folks, you could see some teams maybe add a few people over the summer, you know, maybe some graduating um, college seniors who might show promise or, or maybe just a couple of guys to fill in and be spot, um, you know, spot substitutes in case there's an injury. Um, I, I don't think, though, that the teams are going to want to increase their roster significantly, and anyone that they added would probably be the old-fashioned way, which is basically you only get paid if you make an appearance. So mm. um, because you know, because of everything that's going on, these teams are still losing money, right? You still have to, um, you, you might get some relief from states or counties or the federal government, but for the most part, you're losing revenue from your main businesses because a lot, most of these owners have businesses outside of soccer. But then not only that, but, you know, you, you basically don't have, um, you know, significant revenue, but you still have to pay your players because contractually you do. I think, you know, once there's a CBA for, for USL League One, I suspect that the owners will uh, have some clause in there that says that the players don't get paid or, or what the players will get paid in the event that a season or matches aren't played, that, um, you know, they'll have some reduced wages. Probably not zero because the players would be silly to sign on to that, but, mm. um, but, but you know, some kind of relief for, for the roster because, you know, ultimately right now, like, if, if the players are getting paid, then that means that these teams are losing a lot of money and not making any revenue. Wow. Okay, so the other question that now pops up in my head now is how is COVID going to impact, you know, the growth of clubs such as Union Omaha or teams that are looking to get into USL League One? Do they now look at it and be like, hey, maybe it's a better option for us to go Maybe USL League Two or the NISA. Do you, how do you think you know this whole uh, quarantine pandemic affects those choices? Well, so I think it affects teams that share stadiums or rent stadiums less than it does teams that either own stadiums or, or have fixed um, fixed rents for rentals for stadiums. So I think in the case of something like a Union Omaha, they're probably a little bit better off than. Um, than some others uh, that, that own their that might own their own stadiums or are building stadiums. You know, I'm thinking about Chattanooga or um, or Tormenta, um, where you know they, they're in the process of spending a lot of money to build these stadiums. So if they can't get three, four thousand people per match it, in the future, it's going to be a, a big um, a big problem for them. Um, I, I think most of the teams will survive at least for another season. Um, I think everyone will try to play this year or next year. Um, it seems like that to me that everyone's kind of committed to that. Um, you know, the expenses for League One aren't so high that um, that it's necessarily going to bankrupt any of the teams. Um, the your expansion question is interesting because I think one of the things this probably does do is that if you want to go into the league, you might not be willing to pay the expansion fees uh, that you were willing to pay before firstly, or if you do, you might pay them a little bit more over time, kind of a structured means of uh, doing it. So so in finance, a lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, some kind of um, uh, structured payment where, 
you know, you only make those payments under certain circumstances. Um, so, so, you know, something like that is completely possible. And that, that affects the front office, you know, so that affects the guys down in Tampa more than it affects, you know, the individual teams. But, yeah, so for expansion, I think that this is going to change a lot of the ways that people think about the sport because people are going to say, okay, what's my risk in the event that we don't play a season because of a pandemic in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, ironically – that means that, you know, we probably won't have a closure like this again <laughs> because everyone will be ready for it. But, but, the, but, but the point is, is that it will change, I think, people's mentality about how, um, you know, how entertainment works because ultimately, ultimately, you know, soccer games are events. I mean, you, you've been there, I've been, to, been there, and, you know, you go for the spectacle, basically, and, and it's, it's clearly entertainment. You know, it's like people who love going to rock concerts or bass concerts or whatever. You go there to be in that group of people on the vibe, right? You don't necessarily, you know, you can listen to the music on, on the radio, but there's another reason why you go see it live, and it's, it's to be with kind of those like-minded people. Um, so, so I don't think that soccer is going to go away because I think there always will be demand for it when it's safe to do that. Yeah. Um, but, but to your point, there, there will be, I think, significant changes in the way that, uh, in, in the way that, that even leagues may, might even be structured. So, for example, one of the things that this might do for some of the leagues is say, okay, to reduce travel expenses, to make it easier for everyone to travel, let's always have, you know, two divisions or four divisions for Major League Soccer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's completely possible that, that those are the types of big changes that could come out of it. Okay. Well, <clears throat> now... I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want to get too much in the rabbit hole, but I'm just going to ask you. Do you think this opens up or kind of hasten the timeline to ProRail for USL? Not really putting MLS, I know that's a whole different ballgame, but more between USL, um, USL Championship, USL League One. Do you think now there might be like a, um, how can I put this, like an in-between division between Championship and League One? Do you think something like that might happen, or do you think championship might go from just two divisions might actually go to like I mean not two divisions, uh, east west? Do you think they might go to like four different subgroups? Well, so I think the I think the issue with pro rel has always been, and and this is the single biggest issue that I think people who you know you can structure a pro rel system immediately. I mean, you can snap your fingers and think of two or three different ways to do it. The problem with ProRail, and I wrote about this on, on the Beautiful Game Network on BGN.FM on, uh, um, and on a written piece, the, the single biggest problem is what do you do with teams that have paid their, um, their franchise fees, right? So if you've paid $10 million in a franchise fee to have a USL championship team, you are unwilling as an owner to take the risk to get relegated to League One, where the franchise fees are significantly low. Or like we, we don't, you know, they don't disclose what they are, but let's just say it's a million dollars or two million dollars. It's significantly less than what it is in the championship. So how do you how do you compensate those owners for being in a different league, which might not have the prestige and, and you know basically that that you paid out? That's the single biggest issue with pro rep. Yeah. Um, you know, and and MLS owners were um, you know were offered at one point. Um, like five billion dollars in order to open up the the system and to have some kind of pro rel, and the owners of Major League Soccer at the time said no. Our our organization, if you include everything like Soccer United Marketing and everything else, is worth more than that on an annuitized basis. Again, it's, it's, it's again it's a financial term, but basically if you take the take all the cash flows that that the owners of Major League Soccer teams were expecting over five five or six years 
and said, what is all of that worth today, right? So what's the net present value of that money today? And he said it was more than $5 billion. Wow. Um, so, so again, it's the same type of issue where if you're a Phoenix Rising, now Phoenix Rising is probably not going to get relegated, but let's just <laughs> say that Phoenix Rising you know, was going to get relegated, you know, those owners would not be very happy with, um, with their situation and, you know, because, you know, they have a big stadium that they pay for, they have, um, they'd be worried that maybe less people would come because they're playing in League One. We haven't, well, we haven't built yet the local soccer culture, I think, enough to support teams in pro well. Like, if you could guarantee every single owner that they were going to have, you know, the same number of, um, of fans come to the game if they got relegated than they did when they were in the higher division, then owners would be a little bit less worried about being relegated. But right now they're not, right? Because it's, it's you know, in this country we have this idea about minor leagues, right? Like, you know, going to see the Trenton Thunder, which is my local minor league baseball team, it's a, it's a farm team for, um, for the Yankees. They, you know, they obviously are seen as a minor league. And unfortunately, even though USL doesn't want to be seen as a minor league, a lot of the mentality in the U.S. is that they are a minor league. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, even though they're not technically developmental in some cases, I mean, obviously the MLS two teams are, but, you know, the Richmond Kickers are certainly not a developmental team. They develop talent for sure, and that's part of the, the goal. But that's not the primary purpose of, of the team. Um, and, but nonetheless, I think a lot of people still look at, you know, League One and the championship as minor league soccer as opposed to, um, kind of lower division. Like, like, we're not used to what a lower division is. That's just not something that is in the, the kind of the, I, I guess, the infrastructure and the mindset of the American uh, soccer fan. And that's very true. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles for me getting people to come watch the Richmond Kickers. Like, yeah, they look at it as a good time. They kind of think about it more as, like, how we have the Richmond uh, Flying Squirrels, how they're, like, minor league baseball, and it's fun and it's quirky, but... I'm not going to follow them like I would like a major league baseball team. They kind of think about the kickers that same way, where it's like, well, these guys are in minor leagues and they're not really good, and, and I'm not going to spend this much time, but they'll go, you know, pay double the amount and spend the gas to go up to D.C. United to go watch, you know, them play. So I, I get that whole argument. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was about how, you know, these owners and how much money they're putting into it and the risk-reward about that. So I wanted to ask, do you think, well, this is a two-part question. Do you think we'll see teams from the championship drop down to USL League 1 because the fees are a little bit lower um, and the cost of travel will be a little bit lower um, due, because of this quarantine and break? And also, do you think we see an increase in fan ownership clubs? You know, clubs that are owned by fans, not so reliant on just one owner um, in U.S. soccer. So both, so definitely two different questions there. So let's go to the first one. I think the first one's an interesting one because I do think that there, you know, one way to, that USL could kind of USL wants teams to join the championship if they're um, if the the demographics in the area allow for it. So if you were in a in a metropolitan area that has a certain number of people that fits into the U.S. soccer definition of a of a second division uh, professional team then they want people, teams to go there um, for two reasons. I think, one, they want teams to go there because they get a higher franchise fee, for, for one. And, and two, um, it's, 
it's just it's an easier sell maybe to potential owners saying you're in the second division, you're very close. If you do a great job and you wind up you know with a lot of money, maybe one day you can go to MLS. Um, you know, I think what might be smarter for almost every team, and this would would be um, you know every team, even if they're in a big city, relatively big city. To maybe think about go to you know USL League One for a year, two years, three years, and then once you have a developed fan base, once you're you know you know that you can get eight, nine, ten thousand fans in every game, and you have a soccer-specific stadium, then you think about you know paying the extra franchise fee and moving up to uh, USL Championship. So maybe and maybe you can even structure a deal with the league that way and say okay here we're going to pay our million dollars to be in USL League One. But, um, you know, uh, we only want to pay, you know, maybe if the regular franchise fee is $9 million, uh, $10 million, you say, we're only going to pay another $9 million to go up to the championship um, if uh, we do that in the next three years, something like that. So, so there's, again, different ways that you could structure that. So I think that that would be smart of owners to do. So if you're thinking about right now going into USL, the USL championship, maybe start in League One. Uh, build your fan base and move up. And, and, I mean, that's similar to what some teams like in League One have done, like South Georgia Tormenta or, um, uh, you know, like, like Des Moines Menace, for example, that, that's going to go into the championship. You know, they built their, you know, reasonably successful USL League Two side. Like, maybe they should be thinking about being in League One for a little while first. Mm. Um, and your second question was, was about fan ownership. So out of curiosity, Elliot, let me ask you, so what brought you, what made you ask that question? So was there some impetus for you to be thinking about uh, club, clubs owned by fans? Well, it, it just came about as a thought that I was having about the money issues that some clubs in America might be having or um, you see it more abroad where a lot of cl- clubs are kind of fan owned and more lower leagues. And I was thinking about that here in America, you know, will we see an increase of fans coming together wanting to make their own club? Like, for instance, in Lansing, I got our friends up there, um, shout out to Capital Combustion, about how they're going through the process of making their own club. I don't know what league they're going to start, but how they're making their own club. Or like here in Richmond, we have Loco FC, which is a fan-owned club that plays in UPSL. And that just kind of got my process thinking, like, well, you know how many owners would start to kind of back out of wanting to own a team and how many of fans would be like, Hey, you know, let's get together and let's save the club or let's make our own club. And it kind of got started from there. Well, so, so I I think that fan owned clubs is a great idea and we have a model for that too, right? Because in in Germany, you, uh, fan uh, fans have to own 50, plus 1%, a little over 50% of, uh, of the club. So you can't have a single owner. The, the, there's two issues with that at the professional level in, in the U.S. One is U.S. soccer rules um, say right now that you have to have uh, for professional clubs to be sanctioned, the ownership, owners of each club have to have certain net worth. So, so in order to have a professional league with fan-owned clubs without at least one large uh, high net worth ownership group, um, you would have to change uh, you'd have to change U.S. soccer rules. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that U.S. soccer rules are right. In fact, I think that they probably could be and should be tweaked. And it would, to allow something like 
in, in a, a third or fourth division um, league to have fan ownership of their clubs. Um, but that being said, I, I think that there is an advantage of having basically wealthy owners of clubs, and that's stability. Because if you had a fan-owned club right now, like let's say that the Richmond Kickers were fan-owned, and they, which in a way that they they are given the ownership group, but but let's just say that they were um, that that there were you know two thousand fans who happened to own that club, um, and they each paid a thousand dollars for the club there would be capital calls right now. So everyone, you, Elliot, as an owner of the Richmond Kickers, would probably be asked to pony up 500 bucks so that the players could get paid. Wow. And that the people mowing the lawn would get paid. So think about the risk there, too. Right? So, so either that or the, or the club folds, right? Right now, if there were tons of fan-owned clubs all around the country, they would go away. So, so there's benefits and, and not, um, and, and risks, obviously, with, with having fan-owned clubs. Now, that being said, should fans go out and start you know, clubs like UPSL clubs or, or men's clubs that, that play in, in you know, basically U.S. amateur soccer? Sure, I think that's a great idea. I mean, you know, Christos obviously made a, that great run in the Open Cup a few years ago, and, you know, they don't get a lot of fans at their games, but they play... In, uh, in the amateur league, but there's no reason why people couldn't go and they couldn't charge a couple of bucks a ticket for everyone to go to their games. That's, mm-hmm. that's fine. That's a matter of marketing and do you want to do that business uh, side of things. Um, so those are, um, so, so I think that they should do that. Now, what, what I think teams should consider, and certainly something that I'm considering for, for my project up here, is, um, is doing something like Chattanooga FC did, and that's selling basically part of the club to um, to the fans. Mm. And you could even have, if, if you know clubs were to do that, which you are allowed to do today, there was legislation a few years ago that allows for, um, as long as you have under a certain number of investors, allows for basically public ownership of clubs. And if you do that, um, you can even give you know the fans a seat on the board, right? If you have a seven-person board of the club that you know that ownership group that owns 20 percent that's only fans they could maybe um you know basically elect and vote for a uh, board member and so so fans and supporters could have a say uh in the boardroom about you know who's going to be the coach who's going to be the head of soccer whoever um you know that would be uh, that would be fun i think that that would be an interesting way to go and i think that that's something that um that a lot of clubs should maybe consider trying to do um, if they can, you know, price it right, and depending on how much money that they need to raise. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that just now opens my eyes because I wasn't really thinking about the cons about it. But let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, we're going to come back to this topic. How if is you're the an owner? You take risk. That's that's ultimately Elliot. What you have to remember: if you're an owner, you're taking the risk. So, um, so, so it's it's not it, it's not a light undertaking that you can take. See, yeah, that's true. I grew up playing FIFA uh, career mode, so there's no risk in that. So I just buy whoever I want and do whatever I want. Uh, you, can get, you can always get free players, you know, guys guys on trees way too easily. Yeah, exactly. I, I can build, you know, Leighton Oregon into a super squad by year or two. It makes no sense. <laughs> um, but let's go on. Um, I'm going to jump into this next topic. Uh, how is the process going for you since you're going through it? Let's going to talk about it, about building your own team. How was that process? What league are you looking to start at? Where are you guys looking to play? I want to know everything about it. 
Yeah, so so we're starting. I, I think I'm now a, uh, a LLC, so we're now a company. Uh, we're called Mercer U23 Soccer. So our goal is to have um, over the next three years both a men's and women's um, under 23 team. So we are planning on playing in USL League Two initially. Um, so we'll be in the, the USL um, uh, umbrella. Um, we the, the way the reason why I'm starting this. Uh, this club, to, and we're going to play at a local college here called College of New Jersey. It has a 6,500-seat stadium. Um, it doesn't have a track around it, so it's great because it's, uh, um, it's got a, a proper size field. It does have football lines, but you know a lot of teams in this, that particular league do. The reason is because I wanted to get more involved in soccer, and I looked around and I said, you know, I could, I could basically volunteer to be a, a assistant general manager at a USL League Two or an NPSL club. And I looked around for where my closest clubs were, and they all were more than an hour away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, actually, ironically, um, the closest club to me right now is the Philadelphia Union. And and I'm a Red Bulls fan, so I can go the other way an hour and 15 minutes and, and go to the Red Bulls. So, so I, I realized that and Central New Jersey is a huge hotbed for soccer talent. There's tons of players here who go play Division One soccer. Um, you know, Florian Below, who plays for the New York Red Bulls, he went to university right down the street from me. Um, you have a, a ton of women's national team players like Carly Lloyd, who came right from this area. So, so this is just a major hotbed of soccer, and um, I, it's just, I found it difficult to believe that we didn't have a summer program basically aimed at college kids. So, uh, so I'm in the process of building that. So I've been talking to all the local college coaches from Princeton and Seton Hall and Ryder University. Um, uh, we're in the process right now of hiring our head coach. So the nice part about League Two is that we don't have a lot of overhead because we rent our stadium. Um, we, uh, unless we, you know, play our games, we don't have to pay for travel or anything. And those are the two biggest expenses by far. The players don't get paid because they're most of them are college players. So this is a an amateur uh, team. And from uh, so, so our big thing is trying to build a community around this, and and so we've been in contact with some local leaders in, in various communities, and um, been in touch with the American Outlaws in the area. So yeah, you know, and, and all the soccer coaches, certainly on the soccer side, everyone is really excited about this project. Um, you know, quite frankly, our bigger challenge, biggest challenge, is going to be like the challenge of everything. It's going to be getting butts and seats because. You know that's our revenue. We don't have a TV deal. We we have to get bucks and seats, and we have to be able to sell merchandise. So we're going to need a, a cool kit. You know, and we're taking some of the uh, um, you know taking kind of best practices from all over, both professional teams as well as as amateur teams, and that have done it well. And, and we're trying to you know take take the good things that we can from from those uh, experiences. And, and I have to say, Elliot. I, I've been super excited about how open and willing to talk everyone is. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I've talked to a whole bunch of owners and, and general managers uh, of folks, um, and, and they've been super. So they've been really, really helpful in uh, getting this thing off the ground. So, you know, we're moving slowly. We're not going to start playing till May of 2021. So we're lucky in that we were, you know, didn't rush to play this year. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's moving along slowly. And once we have our head coach, we'll be really excited because that's our single that, you know, he gets, he'll get paid the most. And, um, he'll also be the face of the club for the, the first, uh, the first year of the club, basically. Okay. Okay. So can we get a little inside scoop? Like who are you guys looking at or anything? 
Well, so it's, so we basically went out on social media and we posted on a couple of different uh, job sites and uh, you know word of mouth spread around. So um, they're mostly mostly college coaches, either people with college coaching experience. Uh, one is a uh, coaches a U eighteen development academy team. Another one um, actually coached an NPSL team before and now coaches in the DA um, on the girls side. So you know, so there's a lot of we have a lot of. Um, a lot of very talented people. I, I was very impressed. Like I got one of the one of the first resumes that I that I read. I said, uh, you know, if this is if this person ends up as the coach and this is the best, I won't be disappointed. So it was a uh, you know we, we have we're we're in the process right now of, of calling through the resumes and we're going to start interviewing people in just a couple of weeks and uh, and then once we do, uh, we're then going to figure out you know what what our next steps are in terms of marketing and and you know making sure we can build a good roster um i don't know how we're going to recruit depending on what the college season does next year like if they're going to have a, a fall spring season and if the spring season doesn't end until mid-may like how do you know what's the league going to be like so there's, so there's a lot of challenges for sure uh, because of covid but um but you know we're, we're still chugging along we're trying to build a, this grassroots camp uh grassroots soccer club up here Okay, so what would be like the per- the philosophy of the club, and like, do you guys have like a color yet, a color scheme yet? Like, what's going to be the colors or all that stuff? No, no, we're gonna we're gonna let the fans uh, chime in on that. Um, I mean, you know, I have a general idea of like my own preference, but generally speaking, we're gonna let the fans uh, choose the name. We're gonna let the fans, well, at least have significant input on the name. Ultimately, they'll probably call it down to uh, you know three, and then we'll, we'll make the final decision in the boardroom kind of thing. But um, but yeah, we want the fans to talk about the name. The fans to talk about what what colors they like and don't like. Like we want to find out what truly is the Trenton, New Jersey area. What what are, what are the supporters here? Um, uh, what do they want to see in, in terms of the branding? Um, or we do have a mission, and that mission is to bring affordable, hyper local, high quality soccer to the Trenton area. Mm-hmm. And that's um, that, that's our that's our mission. So everything that we do, you know, goes back to that mission. Like, how do we make sure that we have high quality soccer? Well, that starts with getting a, a very uh, good coach. Um, how do we make sure it's affordable? Well, that's me meaning that we have to make sure that we are able to get enough people in that we don't have to charge more for tickets than, than we really want to. And uh, and of course, we want to make it hyper-local in that we chose a location where people would take a bus there, right? So, uh, you know, New Jersey is very suburban, so most people drive everywhere. But there's a lot of people, particularly in in um, the Trenton area and Hamilton and Ewing, which is this, the areas around uh, Trenton that might not have access to to a car full time. So they, you know, we so we chose a venue where there's a lot of bus travel that can get people there. So you know, we really want to make it accessible for everyone. So so our, our ultimately we want to be able to bring your family to our soccer game for less than the cost of going to the movies, and that's. Um, uh, that, that's ultimately what we're trying to build here. Wow. Okay. And you, you said the team is on Twitter, so what's the Twitter name? So I can go on and start following it, you know. Yeah, it's at US, USL2, the number two, Trenton. Um, that, that'll ultimately change, obviously, when we actually have our branding. But for now, it's uh, at USL2, Trenton. And uh, um, where uh, Mercer, we just changed it. Mercer Pre Pro Soccer on uh, on Facebook. Okay, okay. Has anyone started like a little supporter group for y'all yet? 
So it's funny. We we had a guy who used to be a capo at um, at, uh, at, at in Mexico <laughs> come up to us, and, and so so he's our first supporter, as far as I know, out, who's not you know one of the people who I've talked to in, on the soccer community. So. Um, so, so not a formal group yet. I think that that will come you know, once we have a coach and once we kind of do a bigger announcement that, uh, that, that we're around. Um, you know, qu- quite frankly, we haven't even had the expansion agreement with USA yet because of COVID. So we've <laughs> things down a lot. So we actually need to sign a document before I think I'm allowed to, you know, make it official. So um, I'm kind of making the announcement on your show here, Elliot. You know, this is uh, this is kind of a stealth way maybe to <laughs> I mean, hey, look. Putting it out there, you know. Look, only thing I ask for is just a jersey. Just send me a free jersey once y'all get the jerseys. Just, just go on the slide one down here to Richmond. Tell you what, you come to the game and we have we have we have like a uh, we have a luxury box. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not so so you know I, I can maybe get you up there. It's called the presidential box, and uh, I'm happy to happy to host you up there. I won't be there because I'll probably be taking tickets or you know, pouring drinks or doing, you know, doing something around the stadium. So I, I, I very much doubt that I'm, I'm yeah, at least in the beginning, that I'm going to be able to watch this many games live. So uh, <laughs> ultimately, I'm, I'm going to be in the stands. I'm going to be, you know, if there is a supporters group, I'm hoping to, you know, maybe do a couple of chants with them or something. And then, uh, you know, there's going to be a little kid zone on the side that, you know, it'll be closed during the game. But, but pre-match, we're going to have a kid zone. My uh, 16-year-old son is probably going to help, help run that. Um, you know, so it's a real family affair, and it's uh, it, it's great. So um, it, it's gonna it, it's a lot of hard work, particularly when you have you know a, a seven to seven day job. But it's it's also uh, I'm hoping going to be super rewarding as well. Once once I see fans in the stadium cheering for a team in, in you know the Trenton colors, that'll be fantastic. Okay, hey, I'm totally with it, man. I got family up in Jersey, so I'll definitely try to come up to a game. Um, I'll come for you a ticket. I'll just, you just have to maybe help me pour a couple of sodas or something like that. Hey, that, that's that's cool, man. I'm, I'm fine. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that I know you're super familiar with is uh, in the news that came out, uh, U.S. Soccer decides to shut down the Development Academy. Um, and I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions about it. Do you mind talking about it? Yeah, I can talk about it a little bit. Um, I mean, there certainly are other people who are, are much more familiar with some of the other goings on since then. So the so the, the Development Academy was, was started about 11 years ago on the boys' side, and, and not long ago, only about three years ago on the girls' side, which was basically the U.S. soccer's way to um, kind of create a, uh, a, a certain standard for, uh, for high-level clubs to operate under. And, you know, this was at a time when, when basically, you know, Major League Soccer, a lot of the clubs didn't have a youth affiliate. They didn't have youth clubs. They didn't have really good coachings or, or academy academies. And they weren't necessarily developing homegrown talent. Um, so it was a way for U.S. Soccer to kind of make sure that, um, you know, the youth clubs that were both run by professional teams and also those that were pay to play, you know, outside of that, um, of the professional structure had basically a cohesive set of standards where you had a certain level of coaching, where you had a certain, um, uh, quality of fields, where you had a turf field access to a turf field where, um, you know, you, you had trainers at your games, you know, so, so there were, there was basically just a whole list of things that they wanted to do because, um, you know, basically they had looked at what, 
some some organizations and some countries like Germany and, and the Netherlands had done for youth development and kind of wanted to set those standards. But U.S. soccer didn't have a way to do that um, because they wanted to make sure that the those teams played against each other and that, that would be a high level. Now, the problem with that had become, and a lot of people had complained about this, including myself, is that U.S. soccer started to almost solely look for national team players out of that pool. And even though probably a vast majority of the best players in the country played for a development academy team, there were some that did not. And it was also sometimes difficult to get into a development academy team, either because one wasn't in your area or it was too expensive for your family to do it. Now, most of them, in fairness, had... Um, did have scholarship programs, so so if you had financial need, you could probably have played anyway. So that the whole pay to play thing, I think, is a little bit nebulous because someone pays. Like that, that's the thing that always annoys me about this whole pay to play argument. Someone pays. So if you can't just you can't have a soccer team without someone getting paid, unless you only have volunteer coaches. I'm a volunteer coach. Um, but at the same time, am I the best coach in the world? No, I'm, I think I'm a decent coach, but, I'm, but my, my son has had way better coaches than, than me um, in his, uh, in his you know, six, whatever, nine-year soccer playing career. So, so ultimately, when, when they, they closed it, I think the, there was a collective sigh of relief in some, in some circles because we said, okay, good, you know, they're out of it. There are things that U.S. soccer could probably do, though. So the U.S. soccer could probably say, like, look, if, if we think that you should get certified to be a, an academy team level one, academy team level two, and if you want to, we'll come in and evaluate you to, and, and say, okay, here's the 20 things. You need to have 18 of these 20 things in order to be a level one academy. If you have 15 of them or 14 of them, something like that, you can be a level two academy. And, and that would keep U.S. soccer involved. It would keep the standards of those clubs high. Um, at, but it would also allow those clubs to play in whatever league best suited them. So a lot of teams have been going to the elite club national league, that's UCNL. A lot of teams have, you know, might wind up in this major league soccer is, is talking about doing their own um, their own development academy league. So, so there's going to be several new uh, leagues popping up, probably for high level, and some of them already exist. Quite frankly, like uh, you know, even USL has Super Y, which is a, basically a high level, um, a high level youth league that plays in the summer. So, so there's there's going to be plenty of chances for kids to play competitive soccer. From a U.S. soccer perspective, it creates a challenge because how do you scout? Well, now you need to increase your scouting network, you know, not not twofold, threefold, probably tenfold. So you really need to get a good group of scouts out there scouting games just at random all over the place and trying to, you know, trying to identify some of the potentially best players in, in the country. And and that's always been a problem with the U.S. It's just our size we're just really really big so mm -hmm. so things like usl league one are actually helping quite a lot because we're putting professional teams that can identify local talent in places that never were scouted before right like connor antley i i've talked about on on league one fun for for ages you know he's going to be playing at indy 11 now but he would have never been found he never ever would have played professional soccer had south Georgia tormenta not existed Right? If South Georgia Tormenta wasn't there, Connor Amley would have graduated from college and probably, you know, be somewhere in a, you know, a marketing department at some company or something like that. Not, not, not that that's a bad job, I'm not saying that, but the fact is he's a very good soccer player and should be playing professional soccer somewhere, and because of South Georgia Tormenta, Connor Amley is. 
and and that's uh, that's what we need, and that's one of the reasons why we need more and more local teams that play in places that don't have other teams, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, that, that, that's why it's so exciting to have like teams in Omaha and and uh, Kansas City, and and just you know you think you could rattle off you know places that didn't have professional soccer before. Hmm. Okay. So out of this, you know. I know USL just started doing their own academy thing. Um, I can't think of the proper name of what the tournament was called, but I know USL had their own. It's just USL Academy. It's oh, that's what it was? Okay, I thought it was like a fancier name for it. But with the <laughs> development academy shutting down and now teams have to go to different leagues like the league and stuff like that, how do you think this affects USL um, academies? I think MLS is kind of doing their own thing, but how does this affect USL academies? Yeah, so I think that, that some teams may ultimately play USL Academy. Um, you know, the, the structure of USL Academy, I suspect, might change. Um, it's hard to hard to know at this point because we haven't heard from them, and I think some of the staff uh, for the academy has been furloughed since they're not not playing games. So I'm not, I'm not sure what the plan is. But, but there is an opportunity there for USL for sure. Um, a lot of USL teams might play in, in for the USL Academy, but they'll probably also play in a local league as well. So, for example, uh, North Carolina FC, their academy, who you know you guys know well, obviously, yes. um, they're they're going to ECNL to the elite club nationally, um, and their so their academy is going to play there. But that they'll probably also participate in the showcase events that US. Academy hosts, you know, in, in Tampa or wherever they end up hosting them in the future. So, so, so I think that they'll probably do both. Would be my guess. Um, and and they're and and quite frankly, like the the idea that you know all of these teams went to ECNL from the Carolinas. Um, I think was there a Virginia? There might have been a Virginia team or two that did too. Because I think. Now, now I don't remember. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think there might have been a, a Virginia team or two that, that did as well. But but it basically will limit the travel a little bit more too, because you'll have a few more teams in there. And and the, the uh, you know I've seen and I've read some games in, in multiple leagues, and the difference between uh, you know DA some DA games and ECNL is not that big. Like it's it's you know there's not necessarily a noticeable difference when you see it, and when you. If they had played in things like state cups and stuff, there'd be a lot of times you, you, you wouldn't know what league any of the teams played in if, if, unless someone told you. Mm, okay, okay. Um, so, going back to about it was another point I wanted to ask you. Because um, we were kind of talking about how teams might be looking at... You were kind of ex- describing it to me where it sounded like it was like a uh, a tier promotion system where like your USL League 1, you might tell... Hey, we want to be in League One in like three years, but we're going to do this certain things. Do you think out of this, any teams might self relegate themselves? Do you think that's a possibility as well? Like teams might like, hey, kind of almost do like the Richmond Kickers thing and be like, hey, we were all in, but yeah. now with this pandemic thing, we might have to go down a league to survive. Do you think that might happen? It, it very well may be. Um, I, I don't know enough about the finances or or the team. And, and how the teams are structured in the championship to, to know if, if they do that. I suppose, like, if you paid, if you were one of the older teams, you know, like the kickers, who paid, you know, either paid a franchise fee, you know, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago um, and been in the championship for a long time, you, you might consider that. I, I would not be surprised if they did that. Like, like I've always joked around that, that we've had, uh, you know, promotion relegation in this country for a while, but it's been on an economic basis, not on a... 
Um, certainly, certainly we've had promotion on an economic basis for sure, um, but th- there's not a uh, um, you know there's not a good way to, to relegate. But yeah, that's completely possible. Um, you, know, you know, another a team that might be interesting in that regard might be the Charlotte Independence. Um, if you think about them, if, if there's a major league soccer team coming into your neighborhood and you might not, you know, that, that might poach at least some portion of your fan base. And, I mean, quite frankly, it makes me ill that, you know, a major league soccer team comes in and they suddenly think that they're going to get 15,000, 20,000 people in their stadium. And, you know, a team like the Independence was, you know, they, they didn't bring in bad crowds, but they weren't, you know, they didn't get three or 4,000 every game necessarily. So it, it's not a, um, it, it, it just makes me ill that, you know, we, that, that you just have an upstart team in that same place instead of the independence basically, um, you know, being bought out. Um, and, and I don't know if that was even a question, but I, I, I wish it was, right, because yeah. it's certainly something that, that could happen. Um, anyway, it's, just, it's a much, uh, it's, it's just a little sad for me, for me when I, I see teams like that basically being uh, overridden. Um, you, know, you know, it also it also got me a little angry when, you know, New York City FC came into New York, quite frankly, and all these people said, oh, well, you know, now we have a New York team, and I'm like, you're playing a baseball stadium, guys, like, you know? Like, <laughs> I think there's a little New York Rebels. Not only that, Yankee, Yankee Stadium is a lot, I've been a, I've been a Metro Stars Red Bulls supporter since I moved to New York in 1998, so... Um, but you know, I, I went to I went to Meadowlands, and it's like I went to Jets games in the Meadowlands as well as Red Bulls games. It's like I sat in almost the same seat with the same section. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know, Ira is a very passionate Red Bulls fan. So just <laughs> well, I, I don't know about I mean, I'm a fan. I'm a supporter. I mean, just like you guys support the Richmond Kickers, I support the Red Bulls, and yeah. you know they they were my oldest U.S. team that I supported, so it's, <laughs> you know, kind of, it, you know, it's kind of like your first love, you know, you still follow them on Facebook, even if you, you don't go to, you don't see them very much. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have... I love my wife here, that. Oh, no, trust me, we'll, we'll make sure. Oh, <laughs> um, and just one last thing, um, has there been any club, uh, how, how can I put this, any club movements that have happened so far since we've had the pandemic? That's caught your eye. I know uh, Union Omaha has done the deal with their jerseys, uh, Bend the Curve. Um, Richmond is, you know, if you buy a Raleigh towel, I think half they're matching half of the proceeds going to feed more. Has any, you know, specific club caught your attention on what they're doing for the local communities? Well, I, I, think they, I think they all have. I mean, everyone, you know, one of the great things about... I think in particular the lower league clubs, even more than, you know, the major league soccer clubs that, you know, most of which are, are in very large, you know, very large markets. But when you look at what the kickers and the triumph and, and Tormenta and you know, Omaha and forward Madison, uh, what all of these teams are doing is because they are these community gems, they're able to go out and really help their community however they can. And, and something like, what Union Omaha is doing, I think, is really interesting because, you know, they have all these jerseys. They're not selling them the way that they were. They, were, they weren't able to sell their jersey sponsorship. So um, by going out and basically donating the, uh, the, you know, the profits from their jersey sales with this, um, the, you know, with these, uh, with these healthcare providers who are providing, you know, life-saving services right now, um, you know, it's a, it's a, 
you know, it's not completely altruistic, right? Because it doesn't ingratiate them to the community around them. But at the same time, it also, um, you know, does help the community and it shows their support of the local community and the people in it. So, um, so there's goodwill, hopefully both ways, right? Like the, the fact that, that Dean in Omaha and, and, uh, you know, is willing to, um, is willing to, to, donate their jersey sponsorship basically hopefully that ingratiates them within the community hmm. um i mean i i've been quite frankly keeping up with some of the with the, the footy and five from uh, greenville triumph i think that stuff's been great and um uh so, so i've been i've been you know sharing that with my soccer teams that i coach and and even created my own version of it for for my daughter's team and uh for them to do in the backyard so um you know if you want to see me in a way too tight jersey um you can uh, probably find that on YouTube somewhere. Um, so yeah, all, all of the teams I've been super impressed, and obviously we're all surviving. And and by the way, that there's that awesome, I love that that awesome TV advertisement um, about uh, stay at home with uh, I don't know who they were, but those two the the two kickers who were following oh, uh, uh, the ball. Have you, have you seen yeah, Aqua and uh, Kara. Yeah. So, oh, oh, that was Akira. Okay. Yeah. I, I tell him what, he wasn't wearing a goalkeeper kit, so I, I always <laughs> wasn't. Um, but yeah, that was awesome. That was so great. Like, like just yeah, you know, little things like that. Just I think can make a huge difference, and you know, make and and, and you know, it creates awareness both for the team, but also for the cause that that we're all trying to fight for here. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for just so everyone knows, like my my this thing is beatable. My mother-in-law who's not particularly healthy, 74 years old, she, uh, she got COVID-19 and, um, you know, she was hospitalized for a while, but she's recovering now. And, you know, my, my wife talks to her all the time. She's laughing sometimes. And so, so it is beatable. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's, you know, it's scary when someone, you know, um, is, is at risk of getting it and, and does get it. So we, we have to, you know, and, and we're going to beat this thing, right? It's just a matter of, you know, once it gets hot enough, hopefully the, you know, we'll, we'll be able to at least do more outdoor things. So. Yeah. Just got to be patient, be safe. Um, that's the most important thing. But Ira, we just, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. We've been meaning to do the show for a while. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, man. You very insightful. And, and you wonder why I can't? I, I have to say, the reason I canceled the last one was I was doing a. Uh, I, I had to do a conference call for work with a whole bunch of investors from all over China and East Asia. So, um, so, so I'm sorry, but you know, the central bank in Asia, when when the world, when the financial world was blowing up, is uh, um, had to take priority. So I apologize, Elliot. Nah, no, look, I totally understand, man. I totally understand, but. Um, you have a great night, Ira. We thank you for coming on again, man. Um, it's a pleasure talking to you. Until next time, stay high this year for me. Definitely will, man. We just want to say thank you again to our sponsors, the Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier to MLS, UL Soccer, and, of course, the USL. You can get your custom scarves for a group or a team at roughneckscarves.com. And also, if you're tired of the same jersey design or if you wanted to design something funky and cool for the coronavirus, uh, pandemic, check out Icarus FC. You can get cool, custom, sleek, new design kits at IcarusFC.com. And with that being said, guys, this is Elliot from River City 93. Keep us on the good side, guys. We'll holler at you later.